Open your Bibles, if you would, to Genesis 42. Our scripture reading this morning will be in 42. So if you would put your finger there and flip back a couple of chapters, a couple of months in our preaching series to Genesis chapter 37. I want to read these two passages together. This is Genesis chapter 37, and I will begin reading in verse 5. Hear now the precious, inerrant, inspired word of our God. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Chapter 42 and verse 1, when Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor of the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this section in Joseph's life where he interacts with his brothers, where he is in a position now of power and authority over them. They are in a position of those who are coming and begging of him that they might have food and they bow down to him. I pray, Father, that as we have this text open and as we work our way through it, that we would not just interact with the history of the story, not that we would just have in our minds the flow of how events happened and this interaction and that exchange and these words said, but I pray that you would use this text to make us aware of our own need, of our own need of a Savior, one who redeems us from the famine of our land, not in our nation or our state or our city, but the famine that is 
in our hearts. So I pray that you would work in this time that we would not be distracted, that we would be able to engage with your word, that you would work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been working through the story of Joseph for some time now. We started it back in the fall of last year, and uh, now we have moved on a few chapters. And we've seen last week, particularly, we saw Joseph suffer terribly and unjustly. We saw uh, what his brothers did to him and how it resulted in not just the things done by his brothers, but actually events got worse and worse. And we looked at that and we saw that despite all that went on, despite all the things that happened to him, the hardships and the trials and, and, uh, and the unjust things that happened to him, by means of all that actually, not just in spite of that, but God used those very things such that by the end of chapter 41, Joseph is in charge of Egypt. There is only one person higher than him, and that is Pharaoh himself. And we saw that there is instruction in there that, that uh, God wasn't just overcoming these difficult things in the life of Joseph to bring him to a place where things were good, that in fact, he was using those very things. Those very hardships and difficulties were the instruments that God was using to place Joseph in that position. And I think before we move off of that particular topic, topic, we need to think about how that relates to us and change perhaps the way we look at hardship in our own lives. Look at difficulty, broken relationship. Look at um, maybe... Uh, things that happen at work that we would rather didn't happen, or financial hardship, or something else in our lives that it's not just an obstacle for God to overcome, but that very thing is an instrument in God's hand, somehow ultimately to accomplish our good. The life of Joseph shows us that, and will continue to do so as we press on through the Joseph story, but we saw him go from a place of suffering and injustice to now being in a position of great authority. And through all of that, that, that saga of the life of Joseph, just to this point, we saw again and again how God's sovereign hand was at work behind and above and under and using those very circumstances to bring about his good purposes, to position Joseph into the land of Egypt, not just in the land of Egypt where he still has food, but actually in the position of being able to dispense that food, to, to give out that food, to sell that food, to direct the governance of the nation. God put him into that place. He did so by means of all of these humbling and hurtful events in his life. The life of Joseph is instructive in that way because it shows so clearly the hand of God in the things that he was going through. And through all of that, as a result of all of that, Joseph has been made the Lord of the land. He, the slave boy, he, the, the baby brother who was so ridiculed by his big brothers because of his big dreams and his attitude and because he uh, ran around in his fancy coat and all of those sorts of things, is now the Lord of the land in charge of Egypt. 
Well, today we're going to turn the page from all of those events, and we're going to look now at how that power and that position as Lord of the land is going to be put to use. And so, hopefully we will be able to work our way through a couple of chapters today, 42 and 43. And the first way that we see this power being put to use is with testing by the Lord. Joseph is that Lord of the land. How is he going to use that power? By testing his brothers. And so we read uh, already there in uh, the first paragraph of chapter 42 that Jacob, uh, seeing the hunger in the land, the famine in the land, recognizing that there was food down in Egypt, uh, says to his sons, why don't you go down and buy grain for the famine? And we read in verse 6, reminding us of uh, the fact that Joseph is the one they're going to have to deal with. Ten brothers have gone down into the land, and those ten brothers come as supplicants before Joseph, the one who gets to decide who gets the grain, the one who dispenses it. They come before him, and verse 6 says, Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. You see, it's almost like a fulfillment of that dream that he had all those years ago. And we see, verse 7, Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers. And he spoke roughly to them. He sees them come in amongst all the other refugees, amongst all the other people who are there looking for food. He sees this group of ten brothers come in. They bow down before him, and he recognizes them. And we don't know what went on in his mind, but we see that he treated them like strangers, and he spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. He's quizzing them. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. You see, the cultures were different. The styles were different. And they wouldn't have expected their brother they had thrown into a pit and then sold to slavers. Surely if he's still alive, he's a slave somewhere. They wouldn't have expected him to be the one standing there. And so they wouldn't have had in their mind the foggiest notion that they would be dealing with him. But beyond that, their culture was a culture that dressed differently. They were bearded. They let their beards grow. They looked very different. And here they look at him and he's clean-shaven. The styles were different. The expectations were different. He's dressed like a lord. He looks like a lord. His face is shaven. He's aged 20 years from when they last saw him. He's decades older anyway by this point. They don't expect to see him there. Plus, when he's addressing them, he's speaking using an Egyptian language, not the Hebrew that they're speaking. We're going to see later that there were interpreters between them. Joseph recognized them. They looked just the same, only a little bit older, 10, 20 years older. But they did not recognize him. And Joseph 
remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Flashing back to Genesis 37, remembering how the difficulties had increased and gotten worse in his relationship with them. And he said to them, verse 9, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land, to spy out our vulnerabilities. You have snuck in in some way to figure out where we are weak. He accuses them of spying. He treats them roughly. He's putting them to the test. He's putting a little pressure on them. We don't yet know exactly why, but he doesn't respond with open arms. Instead, he responds by being coarse with them. And they say, no, my Lord, your, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He presses them. They uh, persist in saying that they are innocent, and he presses and persists in saying, no, you've come to spy out the land. And look at verse 13. They said to him, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. They start telling their backstory to explain who they really are. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place until your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. He keeps the pressure on. What's his motivation? Is he trying to get back at them? He's in a position where he could, he could get revenge on them very easily, up to their death, no problem, no questions asked. He has their lives in his hand. What's he trying to do? Well, I don't know precisely what he's trying to do, but the author has told us how many brothers have gone down. There were ten brothers sent down. Joseph has already made reference to the dreams that he had. In the dream, how many sheaves bowed down to him? Eleven. Somebody's lacking. So I don't know if he was thinking back that this is almost a fulfillment of prophecy, but not yet quite a fulfillment of prophecy, and maybe he was trying to bring it about. I don't know. Perhaps that's what he's what he's trying to do. He's trying to manipulate them into bringing Benjamin down so that all would bow down. And why would he want them to bow down? So he can finally have his victory? So he can finally have revenge? I don't think so. That doesn't really fit with the character of Joseph. I think he wants him down there so he can take care of them. There's no food in Canaan. There's food in Egypt. He's got access to every bit of it. I think he's trying to care for them. But nevertheless, he still has this persona, this, uh, this facade that he's putting on. He's treating them harshly. He's treating them roughly. And so he says, here's what's going to happen. Nine of you will stay imprisoned and one of you will go. Get your brother and bring him back. And when that happens, then I will know that you are not spies. But he insists you've got to bring your baby brother. Verse 
20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. So he finally relents. He ends up letting nine of them leave, but he's going to keep one behind. Rather than keeping nine and letting one go, he reverses it. But nevertheless, regardless of that, one of them is going to stay in prison. Their lives at risk until they return with the youngest brother to show to him. So, with all of this talk of brothers and this digging into his family and quizzing about how many brothers and where are they, and they've begun to talk about this topic. This is the topic no one wants to talk about. Can you imagine these brothers? They didn't, they didn't talk about this around the campfire as they were journeying down there. They were trying to forget it. Their own guilt, are you kidding me? They would want to keep that buried. Besides, the more they talk about it, the more they might slip in front of dad and let him know, oh, he actually wasn't torn by beasts. We sold Joseph all those years ago into slavery. But this talk of brothers, this talk of bringing all of them down, this talk of the baby and, and, and having to admit that one is no more causes them to become a little bit uncomfortable. In verse 21, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. They've been convicted. They're experiencing this kind of inner turmoil. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. Now, we weren't told before that he begged. You can imagine that he would. You, you would. And you can imagine that that's what they remember. The pleading sound in his voice. And they refused. They would not listen. And they're saying, this has come back on us. I know why we're in this trouble. I know why we're facing this difficulty. It's because we're guilty. It's been brought back around to us. Verse 22, and Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They're aware of their guilt. They're aware of the fact that this Lord of the land, whose name they don't know and, and all of this, all they know is they are guilty concerning their brother. It's bringing things up they would rather were not brought up. So is this really a reckoning? For what they've done to Joseph? Is, is, is Joseph getting his own revenge on them? They don't know it's Joseph, but we do. Verse 23, they did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. What's on Joseph's mind? He's hearing all of this as they're discussing what they did to him all those years ago. And he's listening Verse 24, then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. So he grabs one he gets to choose. Perhaps Simeon was particularly involved in his being thrown into the pit or him being sold. Perhaps Simeon was one of the ringleaders. We don't know, but he chooses him puts him there, and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack. 
and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. So he chooses for them who's going to be the one who stays behind, the one who stays in jail. And then he takes their money and he puts it in their sack, returns their money to them along with the grain and sends them on their way. And so as the brothers are journeying, you know how the story goes, one of them on a a way station along the way, someplace they've stopped, opens his bag and there's his money. He thinks, oh no, we have, we've cheated the, the, the Lord of the land. Or at least he's going to think that we've cheated him. And so naturally they become afraid. They've got stolen goods. This guy recognizes his money is back in his sack. And so the story continues on. The brothers uh, finally get there uh, to Canaan. And they have to explain to their dad uh, why this has happened. That they talked to the man, the Lord of the land. He spoke roughly to us, verse 30. He took us to be spies of the land. And of course, we denied it. We said we were good men. We explained our situation that we, verse 32, we are 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. But the man insisted and said we must bring the youngest. We must bring that other brother. Bring your youngest brother to me, verse 34, then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. So they've got to tell Jacob why they came back with another brother missing. Remember the last time this happened? It was Joseph and dad's heart broke. Now they've come back and not only are they without Simeon, not only are they Without Joseph, they've been used to being without him, but now there's a threat that is happening to Benjamin himself. But the story gets worse. It's not just that uh, it looks like we stole a bag of money. Look at verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. We've all stolen from him. He says what it looks like. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. It looks like they have robbed one of the most powerful men on the earth. Jacob, verse 36, their father said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. He recognizes the threat. He sees that his beloved sons, some more beloved than others, but his sons are being whittled down. Now he's got two missing, and there's a threat to a third. All this has come against me. Then verse 37, Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. So Reuben steps up and tries to give surety or tries to give help uh, in this situation, assurance to his dad. No, I'll bring him back safe, but it's interesting the threat he makes. I'll kill my two kids. <laughs> How would you like to be one of his kids? You're thinking, what? it's not a, not a very great uh, reassurance that he's given there that Reuben steps up and give, but nevertheless, verse 38, but he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he's the only one left. 
If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are about to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. You're going to take another son from me? It would kill me. It would kill me. And so Jacob ends this chapter. Yeah, he's got some food, but they have a sense of guilt because they've stolen from Pharaoh, or at least it looks that way. The brothers have the sense of guilt because of the very clear reminder of what they did to Joseph and all the things that have happened. So they're miserable because of what they're thinking about. Plus, their brother is back in jail in Egypt. They're down a brother. He's suffering there. They're on their own. Plus, they're reminded of all the things that went on with Joseph. And there's poor Jacob. He's, da- he's, he's lost another son. And in his mind, he's got no hope of getting him back. And now there's a threat to his beloved son, Benjamin. Benjamin and Joseph are full brothers. And they are the only two brothers of their mom, his favorite wife. And now there's threat to Benjamin. Jacob is miserable. The brothers are miserable. We imagine Simeon is miserable. They are being put to a severe test. And all of this was made possible because of the power that was put in Joseph's hands. He tests them. We don't know the outcome yet, and it would be a shame to stop the sermon here. <laughs> so I'm not going to do that. I'll continue on. But you, can, you, just, you just feel the dejection. It's like, a, it's like a, a cold, dreary, rainy day, and that's where they live. Limited supply of food and all of this guilt and pain and sorrow and misery that they're wallowing in. Jacob won't let them return to the land to get more food or to give back the money and deal with their problem. They certainly, he certainly won't let them go down with Benjamin. They are put to a severe test. That's the first way Joseph's power is put to use, is put on display. And the second way <clears throat> this power and position are put to use is with grace from this Lord. You can feel the pressure. You can see the sorrow. You can, you can almost taste it. It's almost palpable how miserable nearly everyone is at the end of 42. But then we open to 43 and we begin to see grace. Now, the famine was severe in the land. That old plot point, the famine. That's what drove them down there in the first place. The famine was severe in the land, verse 2 of chapter 43, when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. Hunger will always drive you to make a decision. Going back to Egypt would, would, would bring danger to his family, though, since they'd have to take Benjamin down. And remember, of course, there's still Simeon who's in jail. He's been there this whole time. So what are they to do? That's a a difficulty. And look at verse 8. As Jacob wrestles with this, as he struggles with sending Benjamin, he knows he can't send them without Benjamin because of the promise that the Lord of the land had made. But he's very reluctant to send Benjamin because he loves him. He's got a special connection to him. He's a connection to Joseph, and he's a connection to his mother. 
How can this be resolved? Well, we've already seen that Reuben offered to sacrifice his own two sons if uh, he was unable to bring him back successfully. But now we have Judah. In verse 8 of chapter 43, Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require it. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. You hear the difference in the offer? Judah doesn't put his sons up. Judah puts his own life on the line. Hold it against me if I don't bring him back. So we have Judah has a willingness here. There's a similarity between the offer that Reuben made and the one Judah makes, but Judah's is far more noble. He's not offering to sacrifice a dear possession of his or a dear relation of his. He's offering to give his own life, which of course for us is a picture of what Christ will do. He, the descendant of Judah, the lion of the tribe of Judah, all those centuries later, who will give himself to pay the penalty to redeem us. Christ himself, and we here have Judah in this section being similar in that way. Judah has made a change from the way we have seen him before. He's willing to give himself rather than selfishly clamoring for what he can get out of the deal. And so, Jacob agrees. And he sends the money back along with fresh payment, sends them back into the land, all of the brothers go down there. He sends gifts as well, all that he can provide, as abundant as he can make it. He wants to make it easier. He wants to encourage goodwill from this Lord of the land. And take your brothers and go down. And finally, this Jacob, who has been nothing but fearful, in this chapter and in the one before. Nothing but sorrowful, dejected. Finally, we see verse 14. He's willing to give in. It's something that has to be done. And we read this. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You can hear on one hand the desperation that is there in Jacob's voice, but finally at least we get to hear him praying. We don't know that he wasn't praying uh, before this, but what has come to the forefront on the page is his fear, his abject terror that more of his sons are going to be taken away, that he's going to be made more miserable. And he knows of himself, or at least he thinks, that pile on too much misery and he's just going to die from it. He's dejected, but finally, finally you see a bit of faith in 14 where he knows he's got to do it. He knows he's got to send them down there and he reaches out and says, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. May he give you success and protect our family. And if I am bereaved of my children, then I am bereaved. And he lets them go. 
They go back down into the land. They return into Egypt. This time they have Benjamin in tow. There are ten brothers again with one in prison. They go down into the land, and when they get to the land, rather than going to the regular meeting place, the public hall, or wherever business would have been done, they show back up, and and Joseph does a very interesting thing. He has them redirected to his private home, his private residence. They're to be at his place, and of course, they are worried about that. They think that, well, he he doesn't want us to be in the public place because he wants to off us. He wants to kill us, and so he's He's invited us to his own home so that he can take care of it without others looking on. They show up to his house and they're scared to death and there's the steward and they tell the steward right off, we didn't take the money. There's money that showed up in our sacks. We didn't take it. We didn't put it there. We, we paid it, uh, but it came back. They, they want to get that part off their chest so that they don't end up dying. And it's interesting. The response of the steward in verse 23 He replies, remember, this is an Egyptian steward in the house of Joseph, and this is what he says, peace to you, shalom, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Interesting statement there. Peace to you. Your God, the God of your father, has put treasure in your sacks. All this time, what they had seen as a curse was in fact a blessing. How often has that been the theme in Joseph's life? What looks like a curse, what smells like a curse, what feels like a curse, in the end was a blessing. That was God giving you money. I received your money. And then, of course, restores Simeon to them. We look at verse 26. All the brothers there, they've all been made ready. And when Joseph came home, verse 26, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Now, how many brothers are bowing down? It's not just 10 like it was before. The dream was that there would be 11. But only ten bowed down, which reminded Joseph of what was going on, reminded of the dream that God had given. But now there are eleven brothers. Benjamin is there, Simeon is there, and the other nine are there. There are eleven brothers, eleven sheaves bowing down to his sheaf. Prophecy has been fulfilled. Verse 27, and he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? And they said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. They bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. He sees them, he's responding to them, he's, he's interacting with them, and he recognizes Benjamin, his brother, and he reaches out to him compassionately, and verse 30, Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. 
He's so moved by what he's seeing. He's been putting on this pretense. He's been treating his brothers harshly. This indicates that his, his intent is not harsh. He's not trying to get revenge on them. The more he interacts with them, the more compassion he has for them, the more he loves them. So he comes back out. He has them serve the food. He's separate. They're separate. And when he lines them up, when he gives them all of their food, he lines them up and seats them by birthright, by age, from top to bottom, oldest to youngest. He seats them, and they were looking in amazement at what was going on because they were seated oldest to youngest. And he has opportunity. He sent food from his table, which is the best table in the land, sends food, verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any others. And they drank and were merry with him. He shows special blessings, special affection, special favor for Benjamin, this youngest son. Pours it on and they, they don't understand any of it. And that's all the farther we're going to go. So you're wondering, what in the world? <laughs> well, I am too a little bit. As I think about this, I see Joseph, and I recognize that Joseph is a type of Christ. Again and again, there are too many points of commonality between Joseph and Jesus for us to miss. We must pay attention. And so when we look at this section, and particularly when we divide it up in just these couple of chapters, we have a couple of ways we can apply it to ourselves. And the first way, which I'm not going to follow, I don't think is the right way. The temptation, the, perhaps the most common way is to read this and look at the actions and the attitudes of the brothers and, and preach on whether we should emulate those actions or whether we should not. Should we, should we have the attitudes that the brothers have or should we have the opposite attitude? Or maybe we could look at Joseph and say, Joseph did this, maybe we should do the same thing. Or Joseph did this, we should learn something by looking at the moral of the story. But that, that folks, I think is the wrong way to interpret this. This has not been written for you and me to look and say, Judah uh, made this decision, we should make that decision. Joseph was like this, we should be like that. Or the brothers did and said these things and we should not. That's not the point. The overall thrust of the story of Joseph, which is the point of this whole section, shows God's sovereign hand at work. We've already seen how providentially he took one brother and sent him into the land as a slave, but over time put him into position where he had all power and authority in Egypt. And then when we see the famine come into the land and the brothers in need, we see how Joseph has been put into that place precisely to meet the need of his family. We see God's hand of providence at work. And more to the point, when we look at this, we see that this is not just provision for a family. Like you and I need provision. It's more than that. This is provision for the very people of God. Jacob and all the promises that are wrapped up in him, they need to be provided for. They need to survive. And the only way they can survive 
is if they have food. And how did God provide that food? By taking one of them, putting him in prison, and then putting him into a position of authority where he could hand out food. And so we see God providing for God's people by means of these providential situations. But it gets more pointed than that. Because it's not just the people of God. It's the seed of the woman and the promise wrapped up in that seed that's at stake. Judah, who all those generations later, in his line will come Jesus himself. And if the line of Jesus starves in Genesis chapter 42, where is Jesus? His line has died out. Now that doesn't, uh, nothing is impossible with God, but God uses means in the way God provided for the line that would eventually lead to Jesus is that he put Joseph in slavery and then in prison and then in the White House. God was providentially at work saving and preserving the line of Christ because by that line, by the work that Christ accomplished, you and I are saved. Our salvation depends upon the people of God in Genesis 42 and 43 having food. And so God is putting that together. And that's been the theme, that's been the recurring theme throughout all of this section of Joseph. And I've said that before and I'll say it again, but uh, that is the major theme. But as I look at Joseph, there are aspects we must pay attention to because he's like Christ in so many ways. And so as you move on to point three, I want to look at five misunderstandings about this Lord. And we're going to see that they have an analogy in Jesus. Quickly, I'm going to go through these. You're just going to number one through five on your sheet. Five misunderstandings about Joseph. See, you and I, as the reader, we've been given a particular perspective. We get to look and see what's going on in Joseph's heart and in the heart of uh, the brothers. But the brothers don't have any idea that this is even their brother they're dealing with. But you and I get to watch. And so what does that reveal to us? Well, number one, Joseph saw and knew his brothers, though they didn't recognize him at all. He, from his position, saw and knew exactly who they were. They didn't recognize him at all. All of these are going to come up in our implications sections as we look at five misunderstandings about the Lord Jesus. So you'll want to number them, you'll want to pay attention, they will come up again. Number two, the second misunderstanding about this Lord Joseph When they claimed to be honest men, they didn't know that he knew better. Number three, they thought he was a harsh and angry Lord ready to strike them down for the least offense. They didn't know that he was leaving their presence to weep with compassion for them. They thought he was this harsh, distant, angry Lord when in fact compassion was bubbling throughout, so much so that at least twice he had to leave the room and go cry somewhere else. Misunderstanding number four. They thought he was a distant foreign Lord. They did not know that he was the very brother they had betrayed who was now showering mercy on them. 
they completely misunderstood him. Number five, when Joseph interrogated them about being spies, they did not understand that he was maneuvering to get them all to come down into Egypt where he could care for them. This brings us to our implications. And the implications are five misunderstandings about the Lord Jesus. Number one, and these are parallel, you'll see them. Number one, like Joseph with his brothers, the Lord knew us and absolutely all about us long before we ever came to recognize Him for who He is. Knows us through and through. He seems distant from the unbeliever, but God knows all things. And number two, related to that, when we claim to be innocent before God or downplay our sin, Jesus knows the complete, ugly, scandalous truth about our guilt and shame. We can't hide things from Him. The brothers thought they could hide things from Joseph. And they were wrong. And you and I think we can hide things from the Lord. And we're wrong. Misunderstanding number three. We can think of God as a harsh and angry Lord ready to strike us down for the least offense. But all too often, we are not aware just how deep His compassion runs for us. Misunderstanding about Jesus, number four. We can think of the Lord as a distant foreign God. One of the most important things we can ever come to understand is how God loves us. Despite our sin, despite our rebellion against Him, despite our betrayal of Him like Joseph's brothers betrayed Joseph, despite all that, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Misunderstanding number five about Jesus. When the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin, when He interrogates us closely and points out our guilt before Him, we have to realize that He is doing that for a specific purpose. He is doing that so we will realize our guilt before Him. He interrogates us so we will confess our guilt before Him and stop pretending to be innocent. He makes our sin known to us not to drive us away from Him, but to bring us to Him. And this has application for the person who is not yet a Christian. He makes your sin known to you so you will understand your danger before Him. So you will understand your guilt and your need. He is holy and righteous and you are stained with rebellion and sin. You deserve God's full judgment. And if you die in your sins and unbelief, you will face God's wrath forever in hell, the place of judgment. To you, He is making your sin known so that 
you will confess it to Him and run to Christ and put your faith in Him to take upon Himself the punishment that you deserve. He is convicting you of sin to draw you to Himself, not to drive you away. Don't back away from Him. Don't recoil from that feeling of guilt. The brothers didn't like it. And we don't like conviction. And I think for some people, an obstacle to their coming to faith in Christ is that conviction. They don't like that. And they, this God talk makes them feel bad, so let's stop talking about God. God talk makes you feel bad because you have guilt. And further God talk will reveal to you in the gospel that Jesus himself takes guilt upon himself and pays the penalty for it. That all those who put their faith in him would have that sin wiped away, would have that guilt dealt with in Christ and righteousness put in its place. So if you are not a Christian and you feel that weight, respond to it by faith in Christ. Don't be like the brothers who went away and stayed away in the land of Canaan when grace and mercy and grain were available in Egypt the whole time. Christian, he makes your sin known to you also to draw you closer to himself. Own your sin. Don't hide it. Confess it to him. Ask the Lord to forgive you of your sins and help you to begin to prefer Jesus over that sin. If the men who are serving communion would come forward, please. We have an opportunity in our service right now to celebrate, to look at what it is Christ has done for us in giving himself in body and blood for us to redeem us from our sin. If the Lord is convicting you of sin right now, Christian, good, I'm glad. But don't, don't wallow in that pity. Don't wallow in that pain. Bring it to Him and confess it. Confess it as sin and ask Him to forgive you and He forgives you. Why? How is He able to do that? It's because of what we're going to celebrate right now. So as the bread passes, remember His body broken for you, paying the penalty for you, for your sin, for that very sin. As the cup is passed and you ponder the fact that by faith in Christ, you have the righteousness of Christ credited to you, that you have right standing before God because of what Christ has done, and that is yours by faith. And if you're not a Christian, think on these things and ponder that feeling of weight, of guilt, of conviction, and let it drive you to God by faith in Christ. Jesus gave himself to pay the penalty for worse sins than you've committed. So let these elements pass. If that's you, come talk to me after the service, if you would, please. What we do now is for Christians, it's for those who are remembering, reminding ourselves and celebrating and rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. First, if you would take up the bread, men. <clears throat> 
Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Let's pray. Father, as we have here the bread representing the body of Christ given for us, standing in the place that we should have stood in, to pay the penalty that we should pay for our sin. And he took it upon himself, bore it fully in his body on the tree. And as the elements are being passed, as this bread is being passed, we think of our own sin and we confess it to you. We hate our sin. We want to walk with you. And we rejoice that we have forgiveness because of what Christ has done, even for those sins. And we confess them to you, and we ask that you would forgive us and do a work in our hearts that we would hate those sins even more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
If you would take up the cup, please. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this cup of the new covenant in the blood of Christ. We rejoice that he has done the work that we could not do, that he has walked obediently before you, he has fulfilled all righteousness, and done so for us. We who would never have done so ourselves get to have it credited to us by faith. The penalty that we deserve having been paid by him, we get to stand before you righteous and holy because of what Christ has done, which is ours by faith. We thank you for Jesus who gave his own blood for us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Amen. If your faith is in Christ, if you trust in Him, you've repented of your sin, my encouragement to you today that you need to hear is that your sins are forgiven because of the truth behind what we just celebrated. Praise God for Jesus, our Savior. I'm going to close us in prayer in just a moment. When I'm done, uh, and as you exit, this is the Sunday of the month where we take our benevolence offering, and this is the only way that offering is funded, which helps people in financial need, uh, particularly people in our congregation, uh, helps them uh, where they might need that. So I would encourage you to that. Uh, I would encourage you as well about church this evening at 6 o'clock. We will be back here, even if there's snow on the ground or whatever else might be happening. We will have a church service here at 6 o'clock tonight. And I didn't mention this before. I would ask if the uh, new members would come up front afterwards so that they can have hugs and handshakes and greetings by the rest of the congregation. If you would be able to do that, stay as long as you can, as long as you can. I would appreciate that. And um, there will be a family up front to pray with you. Let me close this in prayer now and we'll be dismissed. Father, we rejoice in Jesus, our Savior, who has been so often misunderstood even by us that we think we can hide our sin from Him or we uh, think that He is distant and angry or uh, we, we, we don't even recognize Him at work. And yet, Jesus, our Savior, is present with us, knows all of the depth of our sin and yet has compassion for us. The kind of compassion that caused him not only to weep, but to give his own life, shed his own blood to restore us, to redeem us. We rejoice in Jesus our Savior, in whom we have forgiveness of sins and peace with you. May we go forth remembering those truths. May we call to mind who is this Jesus our Savior and how wonderful he is to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.